And a happy Thursday morning to you. The last day of November. Where the heck wow. did that go? Uh, we'll be welcoming in crazy to December <laughs> tomorrow. And we were discussing earlier if we had our uh, our Christmas shopping done. And, and some of the big items, yeah, we're getting a better idea. Mm-hmm. But, mm, it's, it's closing in on us. So uh, we also know that this date is uh, filled with uh, sad meaning for the folks in the Oxford community as they mark the, the second anniversary. It was two years ago today that we, yeah. were, um, we were on remote and got this... Uh, Phones began blowing up. The woman that we were with, it was a March of Dimes event. The uh, the marketing director for the March of Dimes got a call from her husband. There had been an incident at an Oxford school where their children attended. Oh, boy. Oh so, my. I mean, it, it instantly hit home where we were. And uh, we just are, I hate the term thoughts and prayers because it has been so... Uh, watered down. Uh, watered down yeah. and also, um, you know, maligned. Mm-hmm. But we do give our thoughts and prayers uh, to those folks as they they deal with their grief on this uh, on this day, and and they are going to mark it with a, a an important remembrance. This yeah, morning. students and community members they're set to gather today for Oxford Remembrance Day. It's as you said the second anniversary of that tragic shooting. Uh, it was uh, two years ago, November thirtieth, uh, when an Oxford student fatally uh, shot four students and injured seven others. The All for Oxford Resiliency Center says it will provide extra support for anyone in need this week as the Oxford community comes together. They'll have several activities today uh, between 9 a.m. and 8 p.m. Uh, they'll have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and emotional support counselors, um, arts and crafts, those types of things, uh, portraits. Um, and you can get all this information if you visit alloxford.org. Alloxford.org. All for Oxford. I'm sorry. All for Oxford. Dot org. They're very good. We'll continue to repeat that throughout the morning for those that want to mark that. Um, meantime, uh, there's a, a story coming out of Israel that we hope is untrue. Yeah, the little redheaded boys that I've been keeping track of trying to yeah. get their story, you know, the Israel Defense Forces said Wednesday it was assessing a Hamas claim that the youngest Israeli hostage, 10-month-old Kafar Bibas, his brother and his mother are dead. The armed wing of Hamas said earlier Wednesday without providing evidence of that. Uh, and now Israeli Defense Forces are trying to figure out if that's true, but they've contacted the family and uh, they're working through that. Meanwhile, Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend their ceasefire by a seventh day, just minutes before it was set to expire. The truce in Gaza appears increasingly tenuous as most women and children held by the militants have been already released in swaps for Palestinian prisoners. Israel says it will maintain this truce until Hamas stops releasing captives, at which point it will resume its offensive aimed at eliminating the group. Now, President Biden told the Israeli prime minister last Sunday that he is concerned about a possible Israeli military operation in southern Gaza after the current pause in fighting ends because it's so dense there, guy. And they're worried about civilian casualties. Well, he's also worried about his political future, too. I mean, we're seeing deep divisions within his own team. We saw that tweet that you talked about yesterday, Lloyd, Mm -hmm. that suggested that there was an eroding support for Israel. Well, they came out and they said, oh, no, that's no change in policy. No, but it certainly was an example that even within his own campaign, they wanted to message and send things to the far left of their party that they get it. Mm -hmm. But they say there's no change in policy. They're trying to have it both ways. Gallup out with a poll this morning. Only 50% support, but 55, uh, 50% to 45 
in favor of the president's handling of the Mideast. That's not a ringing endorsement. So his, what he calls his steadfast support for Israel is costing him uh, big time. There is, uh, Semcock has sent out a new list spotlighting, and it's interesting, they're not calling them the most dangerous intersections like they used to. Yeah. Because the nature of this has changed. They are the most crash-prone intersections that we travel each and every day. Number one, um, in Farmington Hills, right there on the border of Farmington Hills, is Orchard Lake Road and 14 Mile. That Been roundabout? There. Been there. Mm-hmm. Been there? Crashed that? that? No, no. <laughs> But, but I could, th- people are very confused, and when other people are confused, you, you, you kind of have to be on the defensive there. Yeah. You've always, and so of the top five intersections that are highlighted in this report from the Southeast Michigan Council of Governments, four out of five are roundabouts. Now, the traffic engineers will tell you these are not more dangerous intersections. In fact, they are more safe, but yes, you will have more fender benders, but you will have fewer serious accidents. So... It's probably dangerous to your wallet and your insurance yeah. premiums, but it's not going to be. They will be slower uh, crashes. They will not be catastrophic crashes. But, but this, and learning how to use the roundabouts are, is is really yes. <laughs> they do it in Europe, no problem. Yeah, yeah, they're so, everywhere. Yes. I mean, we're now four or five years into this experiment with these roundabouts. If you want to call it an experiment, there along Orchard Lake Road, why aren't we getting better at it? I don't know. <laughs> That's my question for our folks at the Oakland County Road Commission yeah. is because is a number of these are in Oakland County. Um, you know, why aren't we getting better? So the, the top four, uh, 14 mile at Orchard Lake, uh, 18 and a half mile at uh, M53 Van Dyke. That's in Sterling Heights. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the ramp coming off of southbound M53. Uh, State Street south at Ellsworth in Ann Arbor. Um, it's 99 crashes uh, on average there per year. Mm. Uh, northbound M5, which is Pontiac Trail mm-hmm. at Martin Parkway in Commerce Township. And then Van Dyke at uh, eastbound M59 in Utica. And I, you know, I that's know kind of that where one. that narrows down yeah. right yep, on M59. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that slows things down. Meantime, well, we've got a roadway where, um, you know, in the future, you may be able to charge your car while you're locked up in traffic because some guy crashed the roundabout. <laughs> That's right. You know, Detroit <laughs> is now home to the first wireless charging roadway in the nation located on 14th Street, right right outside the Michigan Central uh, Depot right there in Corktown. It looks like your average quarter mile stretch of road, but it's much, much more than that. Uh, below the surface are inductive charging coils that can charge electric vehicles. And now, as the electric vehicle is driving, it has a secondary coil underneath where you can call a receiver and it will allow you to get a charge from the primary coil underneath the ground to the secondary coil, the receiver, into the battery. The charging can happen, Guy, whether the vehicles are in motion or if they are stationary. But your vehicle has to be equipped with the receiving capability. It has to be, yes. Electric vehicles Can must I drop have my receiver. cell phone on the ground on this road and get a quick charge on the way by? Uh, hey, uh, you know, that's a good question. Inquiring minds want to know, and I we'll find th- out when we talk to the vice president of Electrion, which built that road. I, I found this interesting. Will Jones last night on Local 4 said, it doesn't matter if it snows or not. They'll still charge. Yeah. Right. That's crazy. And if I pour a cup of coffee out of my window onto the roadway, I'm not going to electrocute myself. You're not going to electrocute. And and, (laughs) you know, if you're a pedestrian or you just have a regular ice car or you know wildlife, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's fine.
Interesting. We did hear yesterday from uh, University of Michigan President Santa Ono. Um, he was asked uh, by uh, WDIV anchor Devin Skilling at the end of the Econ, uh, uh, the Econ Club get-together, mm-hmm. a little Q&A session there, asked him about the fact that, you know, you, you've got these, the NCAA investigation, you've got uh, so many things going on with this football program that there appears to be some problems there. Uh, where are you on what's happening with your football program? Well, you know, it's true that uh, he has been on the sideline for six games, but we won all six of those games. <laughs> and <laughs> I want to say it's really a credit to him. You know, uh, the coach has talked to me about that situation and has said that he knows nothing about what happened, and I trust him. Trust him. Uh, had heaps. He says, you know, he's a man of honor. I trust him. Um, if you look at the way people respect him and love him, that speaks volumes about the kind of man he is. This is from the, the university president. Uh, and Devin asked him, look, um, still there's something here. Are you satisfied that you've gotten to the bottom of it? Do you think you understand what Connor Stallion was about and who put him up to it? I've never met the guy. Um, apparently he was in a room that I was in. Uh, I don't know him. Um, I haven't gotten to the bottom of it because uh, – these sorts of investigations, you have to be at arm's length, and so their NCAA is actually involved in that. Sure. Yeah. So we'll let it uh, take its course. Certainly, I take it very seriously. This is an academic institution, yeah. uh, to be frank, and ethics and integrity are central and core to what we do. It's a cornerstone to a great university. So as you know, people who have been found to be involved or to tra- transgress proper process have been held accountable, and that's the right thing to do. So. The integrity of the University of Michigan, I take that very, very seriously. All things he needed I think that's to say. a great answer. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is a good answer. But we didn't learn, though, um, was why they agreed to the three-game suspension from the Big Ten. And didn't go into court to... Yeah. The about like face. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That, that dramatic about face. We still That's still a question mark out there. But uh, he says... And, and, and this was... And Devin pointed this out. But one of the first things that uh, President Ono did when he came to the University of Michigan in a Board of Regents meeting said we need to create an ethics commission here to make sure that we are where we need to be in terms of ethical behavior. So uh, he says he takes these things very seriously. We'll see where those chips fall. When we come back, auto dealers, 211 of them from Michigan, joining nearly 4,000 others nationwide, telling the Biden administration, please pump the brakes on the EV transition. We'll find out why coming up at 619 when we speak to one of our leading dealers here on JR Morning. An unprecedented letter, at least insofar as I've ever seen, uh, more than 3,000, nearly 4,000 American auto dealers sending a letter to the president of the United States asking him to basically slow his role when it comes to the transition to EVs and the EV vehicle mandate. This was 3,800 dealerships crossing all 50 states. And the concern is that these are piling up on dealer lots. And we know that uh, dealers, they have the closest contact with the American consumer. They are the point of contact. And uh, we welcome in one of the the best and the biggest of them, Bill Galling, president of the Galling Automotive Group. I don't think there's a nameplate that you don't represent, Bill. No, good morning. How are you doing this morning? We're great, thank you. By the way, thank you for that supersized flag out in front of your dealership at Telegraph and Square Lake. (laughs) I just, every time I go by it, it makes my heart sore. So oh, thank, thank you, you for that. You're a good American. Thank so, you, Guy. What, what was behind this letter? Just put into words what you're hearing from customers. 
Well, th- that was the main thing. Is when it's, you know, right now the mandate is uh, for battery electric vehicles to be 50% of sales in 2030, almost 70% in 2032. And in the California states, they're looking at probably 2035 being 100%. And in all of this, the voice of the customer has not been heard. And the customers are telling us that they're very concerned about affordability. And affordability comes also as far as range and other things, but they're very concerned about the the affordability of the product itself. So when you take a look on the dealer lots, we're looking at a roughly 80-day supply of electrics versus 40-day supply of, of gas cars. So the customers are telling us right now that they're not they're not all in on this yet. And, and we put down the term yet. I think it's a commendable goal. I mean, I think certainly reducing carbon is the right thing for us all to try to be doing. But, for instance, hybrids and plug-in hybrids don't even count. It has to be a full battery electric. Uh, and, Bill, you know, price one thing, but how much does infrastructure anxiety and, and charging anxiety play into this? Oh, it plays in a lot of it. I mean, you know, if, if you're if – you, first of all, 50% of America does not have a garage. So where are you going to put the charger to charge your car? And, you know, and you're, the government's trying to build right now uh, 500,000 more chargers by 2030. That was part of the infrastructure bill. Not a single one has been activated yet, and we put down the word yet. And there, if you take a look at the price that they're doing, that's 15000 a charger. I'm putting in chargers next spring that are uh, level threes, which are the, hot, the, the big ones, and they're just the cost of the charger, sixty-two thousand a piece. Whoa! Wow. Uh, Bill, how did this letter come about? How did three thousand auto dealers come together and write the letter? I'm just interested on the logistics. Well, basically, it started on November seventh with a group of dealers saying we got to try and put the voice of the customer out here, and they wrote a letter and just asked other dealers to sign on. And in that period of time, between the seventh till yesterday. As you said, we have 3,882 dealers, by the way, 211 from Michigan. Bill, I'm going to go off the deep end here for a moment and suggest that could this be part of a larger conspiracy that if you price automobiles out of the reach of most consumers, that they'll end up riding the bus? And could that be the ulterior motive here for for some extreme environmentalists? (laughs) That one's above my pay grade. (laughs) I'm just saying. That's real deep end. When you totally ignore consumers, which is what they're doing, you got to wonder if there isn't a larger motive at work here. Uh, there, uh, there may be, but like I say, that's above my pay grade. But all I know is our customers are saying too much, too, too much, too fast. And the other thing is, is the is the minerals that go into making the batteries are basically seventy five percent controlled by China. I mean, OPEC only controls forty percent of the oil. Is there a, a demand for the hybrids? I know people that have the hybrids, and that seems like a softer landing for some people. A better transition. Very much so. I mean, you know, there is a place for it. I mean, by the way, there's a place for all of it, the plug-in hybrids, the regular hybrids. But the thing is, those vehicles, because they have engines, don't count. The government is pure battery electric. But if you were to take uh, roughly 500 pounds of these raw earth materials, raw earth minerals, lithium, graphite, manganese, nickel, and graphite. If you take 500 pounds, you can make one battery electric vehicle, but you can make six plug-in hybrids and 90 hybrids. Right. And, and the and, difference is huge when it comes to the amount of, of carbon that's saved. And is well, the yeah. goal to make battery electric vehicles or is the goal to cut, car, or cut carbon? Well, exactly. And I, I think, you know, you're a Toyota dealer in, in addition to the Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Kia GMC Fiat Alfa Romeo. 
<laughs> I want to make sure that I didn't leave it anybody. Right? Didn't want to leave anybody out. Uh, uh, but when when you talk about that, you're right. Not only do those minerals uh, create their own carbon footprint in the extraction process, but yes. but and I think the folks at Toyota have done a really good job messaging this, which is when you put someone in a hybrid, you instantly reduce their carbon footprint, and you can do it by more than fifty percent with less of a, of, of a consequence to the environment. Yes, because what it does, it doesn't require a charger. It puts no stress on the grid. Uh, it puts no stress on the supply chain, and it doesn't force people to change their driving habits at all. So what do you do, uh, Bill, with all these uh, EVs on the lot? I mean, you're trying to sell them, but, I mean, if they're not going fast, I mean, wh- what happens? Well, I, well <laughs> sooner or later you have to say, you know, I give up or something, you know, as far as uh, with taking more, but... We, we, have, we are not in that situation really in Michigan too much, at least with our brands. Uh, you know, obviously Ford Motor Company and some of the other companies have got a lot more battery electrics out there right now. For the Stellantis brands, uh, most of that is coming in the next year. Can, can I ask you, Bill, why is it that, that the NADA didn't write this letter? Why is it that the big three and other automakers aren't writing letters just as strongly worded as this uh, to the administration? I think what this is, I think it's better done from us, in all honesty, because we, we are the voice of the customer. And that's the, that's the right thing, I think, to do. It's, the, it's what the customer is telling us, because ultimately that's going to dictate the success of, of this. And we, what we're really looking for is just tap the brakes. Let's, let's push it out. And by the way, some of these manufacturers, if you don't hit these goals, it's millions and millions of dollars in penalties and fines. But I feel like the automakers have been silenced, Bill, that, that, that in past times they could feel like they could push back on this, but politically they don't feel like they can do it, or maybe they just assume that nobody's going to listen. I, 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 you'd have to ask them. Yeah. Well, did you get any response yet from the letter? Nothing, nothing yet from the administration hmm. that I'm aware of. Let's just put it that way. Well, you, you would. You know, I, that's why I, I, I get upset because I think that they are. They, they have. They know this is this is this is a, a a decision they have made to ignore the voice of the consumer. Exactly. Uh, but we uh, we give you full credit and your colleagues for trying, uh, Bill Golling. Well, it's really the do. right thing. Like say again, when you look at prices, the average hybrid's thirty-eight grand, the plug-in's forty-seven, and a and a battery electric is fifty-four. But it's down from sixty. Even with the reduction in price, we've gone from six percent market share to eight. And Michigan, by the way, is at three, and we're supposed to get to fifty or seventy. Wow. Well, yeah. well. So what what you would like to see though is a re- redesignation, perhaps. To give credit for hybrid sales as being uh, reaching that goal, a step towards reaching that goal. I think that, just personally, I think that's a a, a fair thing to get into. But I also think if it's battery electrics, we just need some more time to get the grid better, to have the the charging better, to understand the the range anxiety because obviously you know the range is good at 70 degrees outside, not so good when it's 10. Or not so good when it's 130. Right. So, uh, you know, it, it's just to, it's to get the more control of things, I guess, is the best way. All right. Tapping the brakes. And uh, it is let the customers' voices be, be heard. heard. Yeah, uh, Is at the top of this uh, letterhead from more than 3,800 dealers across America. Bill, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. That's very kind. And everybody have a great day. It was the very wise Ben Franklin that said the only two things certain in life are death and taxes. When it comes to death, it's really something we don't like to talk about, especially what happens to 
our remains or our loved ones after they die, whether they are properly cared for. And that really came into clear focus with some uh, terrible scandals here in the state of Michigan. And it kind of unmasked the fact that our laws um, are decomposing. Yes. They're so old yes. and, and, and need to be updated. And uh, there are two Senate bills, which if the legislature was still in session, they would could, they could be working on. Uh, but they're very important to all of us because this is a certainty and something that we want to see done properly. Vern Pixley is president of Pixley Funeral Homes in Auburn Hills in Rochester. He also has one in Kego Harbor as well. And he joins us live this morning to explain why this is so important. Mr. Pixley, good morning. Hey, good morning, Guy. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to share a little bit about these bills and why they're so important. And it is delicate. Uh, because uh, you know we want to think that that uh, that the the remains of a loved one are are, are respected in in death, um, but the, there's some some basic best practices that aren't even required here in Michigan. Tell me about that. It's so true, and I think with Senator Hertel's package of bills, he really hits these head on and and directly. As as you mentioned, there have been several unfortunate cases in the last several years here in Michigan and most recently in Colorado that the care of people's loved ones was not handled in a dignified, appropriate manner. And the bills that Senator Hertel has, well, it's it's interesting that 50% of the states require refrigeration after a person dies as the proper means of storage. Now, Michigan is not one of those states. It is really important that with the rising cremation rate that we have, Michigan is in the uh, top 10 fastest growing states for cremation. The National Funeral Directors Association predicts that by 2035, 83% of all deaths in Michigan will result in cremation. So most people that select cremation do not select embalming. And without that, there needs to be a proper way to store and handle the remains from the time of death until the time of cremation, because that can take a couple days, mm-hmm. three, five, six days before the cremation can take place. Bert, I don't. This is this is. I didn't know this actually was going on. That funeral homes uh, are not allowed to own crematoriums in Michigan. Uh, it's a great question. Great, great point, Lloyd. The funeral homes, Michigan is one of five states that does not allow funeral homes to own crematories. And as Guy mentioned in the opener, the, our, our laws are antiquated and old. And if we've learned anything through COVID and the amazingly increased number of families that we were serving and deaths that were taking place is we need to update our laws. We need to have the opportunity and the ability to provide those cremation services from funeral homes. And neighboring states have more crematoriums to choose from. So in 2021, Ohio has 153, Indiana has 119, Wisconsin 113, and Michigan only 78. So when COVID came around, uh, that's why there was a backlog, correct? Yeah, correct. And not only a backlog, 
it was because of the scheduling. We just couldn't get things scheduled quickly enough. So in some cases, we have almost 50% fewer crematories than our neighboring states and the highest cremation rate. So we're serving more cremation families. The, you know, these bills uh, are, are, you know, a, a, a great opportunity for our legislature to take these bills up, make them a high priority when they come back into session and get them passed so that we can maintain a chain of custody mm-hmm. where now we have to use a third party and they're great third parties. So it isn't about that. It's just about the quantity and the number and being able to schedule appropriately. Well, and it's, it's if, to Jamie's point, it's not just a convenience factor, having too few crematoriums. It also drives up the price of that service as well, that you don't have the competition. And you have to make this about economics. There, there is some of that here. I'm gobsmacked by this, to be honest. How, how is it that we got here? Vern, how is it that we, our, our laws were so out of date that we don't just require something as basic as refrigeration of, of human remains. I have a question. Did people choose burial back then more than they do now, and we just haven't kept up? Well, I think that's part of it. That's a, a great observation. Yes, the short answer is there were a lot more burials, and the cremation rate steadily rising over the last several years. It goes up about one and a half to two percent every year. So that's certainly part of it. But the laws are the in Michigan, in order to own a crematory, you have to have a cemetery license. And there's an old law in Michigan that prohibits funeral homes and cemeteries from being commonly owned. It sounds like Again, there's a little bit of special interest favoritism there. I... Well, I you could argue that. <laughs> okay, I will. Um, <laughs> The uh, So, again, Michigan is one of the few states that don't allow us to own cemeteries and, and uh, funeral homes. So without that cemetery license, we can't own a crematory. Mm. Very and interesting. Yeah. Stuff that, you know, we don't think about don't until think about maybe it. you're forced into it. Exactly, because yeah. there's a lot of things we don't want to think about. But when it comes to that time, you have to think about it. And now and you don't know what you don't know. Well, and I think, you know, at, at the time that people lose a loved one, they're, they're in grief, uh, they're, they're going through very difficult times, and the last thing you want to worry about is, is my loved one being properly cared for? And how, you know, how quickly are we going to be able to have ashes returned to us? Right. Uh, th- those are worries that people shouldn't have to have. And Guy, you made a great point that Choice generally brings lower costs and provides people with better opportunities. Right. We need to get our, our legislature to make this a high priority and get them to. But why have they avoided the topic for so long? I, I, I would imagine that you've been making this argument for more than just this legislative session. We have, and it's been uh, it's been a bit of a challenge. And uh, some legislatures just haven't been willing to talk about the crematory ownership. What was the pushback? Uh, well, I think it was. Um, I, you know, I really can't speak for others, but from my perception, I think it was a the beginning of a change in the cemetery funeral home ownership. Okay, and that the crematory part of that would 
um, would would lead to more changes in that. How's this thing about refrigeration? Yeah, I mean it, that looks. It sounds like something that seems maybe, like it should be a requirement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just the most basic thing. Again, it, it's it is it is very basic. And if again, if we've learned anything through COVID, it's been that is a necessity and something that we we need to provide. We need to have all providers provide. And interestingly enough, the the cost of providing that refrigeration it, it's less than the cost of a funeral. And yeah. it takes up less space than one casket does. So it's not a space issue. It's not a cost issue. Yeah. It's something that is just a, a dignity issue where we need to provide that care to those that call upon us and expect us to. I think if you asked 100 people on the street, what happens when your loved one dies? They'd say, well, there's a stainless steel wall that has drawers and it's a freezer and mm -hmm, the body right. goes in there because that's what they've seen on television. That's what they believe to happen. And I've asked those questions to hundreds of people <laughs> and they all say the same yeah. thing. That's what happens. I said, no, that's actually not what happens in a lot of cases. So uh, how quickly can you get a hearing on this? Given the fact well, that the legislature decided to take an early vacation. <laughs> well, we're hoping that that will be at the top of their priority list when they come back. Uh, I, I think this is one of those issues Should be that is bipartisan support because it's about human dignity. That's right. And it's about proper care. Hmm. Bern Pixley, thanks so much uh, for your very sensitive uh, approach to explaining this to us. We're all educated this morning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, I appreciate uh, appreciate you guys do a great job, and I appreciate uh, the invitation. All right. Very good. Vern Pixley, president of Pixley Funeral Homes, and you can find them in Auburn Hills, Rochester, and Ego Harbor. When we come back, is this decision day for George Santos? If not today, tomorrow, what awaits him, and are there the votes to purge him? Could be the first House member since what? The Civil War area, Reconstruction, uh, that, that would be purged? We'll get to that next on JR Morning at 649. After an Ethics Committee report detailing that basically everything that George Santos said about his past could not be verified. <laughs> you think? Um, the day of reckoning may be here for the embattled New York congressman who says, uh, you're going to have to expel me because I will not resign. Well, is that day here or is it at least upon us in the next uh, 36 hours? Ryan Schmelz, Fox News Radio correspondent and WJR contributor, following that for us on Capitol Hill. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Well, we're, we're great, thank you. So I know there has been some floating of this vote, I think, as House Republicans try to gather enough support to get this done. Where are they? Hey, well, it looks like there's a strong possibility that we could be moving this vote until tomorrow now. I think we're likely to see debate today, and then they'll make the decision on whether or not they're going to have this expulsion vote. So, you know, I, going into the week, we expected this to happen on Thursday. Uh, one of the resolutions that was actually filed to expel Representative Santos from Democrats was a privilege resolution on Monday, which means they had to vote on it within two legislative days. So now we're on that Thursday. So if they want to move it to tomorrow, they have to table this. Ryan, I understand that uh, Santos says he's going to hold a press conference this morning, like around 8 o'clock. What is he expected yep, to say? I mean, what is he going to talk about? Here's what I really <laughs> meant to say. <laughs> yeah. Good question. You know, I don't think we've really gotten a major indication of what he could say because we're expecting this to happen. 
happen within the next hour or so. Uh, and, you know, I think there could be a possibility he could make a move on resignation. But at the same time, he's already come out and said that he's going to stand for this expulsion vote. So I don't think resigning uh, yeah. is exactly what's going to happen. But, you know, anything could happen with, with George Santos. But I think, you know, uh, he's going to probably make his case and then go from there. But uh, at this point, we just have no idea what he's going to do. Do you think he's going to say some things about other uh, some of his other colleagues? I know he said in the past he's got some things, you know, that other colleagues are doing that people don't know about that he needs to to spew right and he's making those accusations but you know there are there are some members who just aren't afraid of that and one of the reasons is uh, i think what will point something out to you uh, if, if you go through the the uh investigation that the house oversight committee did in the report they released or i should say out house ethics committee uh one thing is that they didn't want to break they, they didn't really feel any evidentiary value in bringing santos in for an interview and one of the reasons is because of some past statements he made, which were just flat out false. And I remember we were interviewing the House Ethics Committee chairman, Michael Guest from Mississippi, about this. You know, we kind of asked him, well, what did, you, what did you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, if, if George Santos would have came in for this interview, I wouldn't have discredited his statement. I would have listened to it. But at the same time, I would have been skeptical of everything he's saying <laughs> yeah. just because of fast, past lies he's made. Uh, Brian, House Speaker Mike Johnson has said he has real reservations about expelling Santos. Is that because of the balance of power within the House or another reason? Yeah, precedent is ultimately the reason you hear a lot of these members say that they're not comfortable voting for expulsion. And that was what uh, Speaker Johnson said yesterday. He has serious concerns about the precedent that's going to be set here because there's only been five people ever expelled from Congress in its history. Three of them were members of the Confederacy. The other two were convicted of crimes. So there's this major concern that since Santos has not been convicted of a crime, should he be getting expelled? Whereas other members are arguing that the House Ethics Committee investigation does show the due process was done, and therefore there's enough evidence to expel him. So there's that big argument that's being had here on Capitol Hill surrounding that. And that's why you still have a number of members who haven't come out and said whether or not they're going to vote for expulsion or not. Uh, Congressman Bill Heising is one of them. Yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll ask Bill about that. He's a pretty reasonable guy. Um, but, I mean, he, certainly uh, there was fraud here, egregious fraud. And maybe he hasn't been convicted of that. Do we know yet why the New York voters that sent him to Congress haven't recalled him? Well, they do. I, I, you know, it, it can be hard to recall congressmen. Um, you know, there, there, there could be the idea they're waiting for Election Day. They're waiting for him to be expelled. And then the governor would set a uh, a special election date. But there's a number of people. I mean, some of the voices within his district and the Republican voices within his district have been right. some of the loudest in terms of asking him to resign. And that's kind of been what the big push has been is just to save yourself this this drama and just step down now and we can figure out what to do. But there is this you know, feeling, I believe, from New York Republicans that they can still win that seat. It would be hard for them to win that seat because it is a fairly blue district. But they believe that, you know, New York Republicans have had a lot of success in elections in recent memory. So they think they could still win this one. If Santos is expelled, uh, what does his future look like? <laughs> I don't know. Well, he's already <laughs> said he's not running for reelection. Right. Uh, that could always change. But he has said he's not going to run for reelection. Uh, and, you know, what he has planned next after that, uh, anybody's guess. Maybe we'll, well know at 8 o'clock to, uh, this morning. That's probably <laughs> good yeah. that he's not because he reportedly took money from donors. Yeah, no, I mean, yes, yeah. he's, he's accused of taking money from donors. Uh, 
you know, whoever, whoever else was funding his campaign and just using it for things that you're not supposed to be using it for. That's the accusation. Uh, and then you see things like Botox treatments in there. Uh, OnlyFans <laughs> allegedly is what he was using too. So these are some serious accusations against him. And, and yes, it's a major concern to a lot of people. So you say he's going to become a fact checker. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man i will will await uh the, the the congress on this either today or tomorrow and uh ryan we know we will rely on you to bring us the latest on fox news when that happens awesome well i appreciate the time as always all right thank you ryan schmelz our fox news radio correspondent wjr contributor you really have to ask you know who who hires this this guy um I don't know. When you Google him, there's going to be a lot coming up. So, (laughs) and when you start checking his resume, you know, are you going to believe anything he says when he does start? That's the thing. That's the thing. Uh, Yeah. For jobs. Also, when things would come out like this in the past, people would just be like, "I'm going to resign," but not him. No. No, it's it's as if there is uh, no shame Mm -mm. there uh, at all, and he 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 is he has been uh, uh, doubling down uh, big time. I've just well, well, I've got you. Look, we got a minute here yeah. left before we have to hit the break. But the, this bus driver in the city of Detroit, DDOT bus driver, kills someone. Yeah, gets in how many other crashes and then uh, doesn't doesn't get fired until nineteen second? accidents on the job, two fatalities, several write-ups in twenty-six years, and she was finally terminated. Is there no? I mean, in any business, you have uh, anti-risk strategies. Yeah. Your your insurance company will mandate them. There is risk management protocols. There was there no one that said, "Hey, this this woman is a frequent flyer to the bump shop." Yeah, and and there's lawsuits now. It's going to cost the city, but you know she should have been gone a long time ago. I don't know why the city is so hard up to keep a bus driver who's killed two people. Is is it that hard to find competent? Bus drivers. Uh, That's the question. Yeah, and how much will their lack of attention to that detail and the risk that she posed cost the city city. and the taxpayers uh, down the road? When we come back uh, at uh, 705, we'll have the latest information for you to start your day, including some interesting economic numbers out. GM making a big surge. And as we wake up this morning, uh, the uh, stock futures all in the green. General Motors coming off a big surge yesterday, a 10% gain in their stock price after speaking with investment analyst Mary Barra, uh, chairman CEO, sitting down with them and, and giving them the news, which is that the strike itself cost General Motors $1.1 billion, which they expect to recoup in, in the coming months. The cost of the contract will annually add $1.5 billion to their labor bill. So that's an increase in costs. Uh, But says that those costs are manageable and so manageable, in fact, that they're going to undertake a stock buyback and an increase in the dividend, basically rewarding shareholders for sticking by them. And again, that caused a 10% surge yesterday. It's certainly... I'm sure in Sean Fain's universe. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. What is Sean Fain thinking? Yeah, it would be saying, see, see I told you. I told you so. And, mm-hmm. and, and does that mean that within his rank and file, there are those saying, you could have gotten a lot more? Um, and, it, and how will that message resonate at other automakers as he undertakes this effort to double auto worker membership by taking the union into the transplants and Tesla? Speaking of Tesla, the founder of Tesla and uh, the, the, the main man at uh, X Twitter, 
Uh, Elon Musk, uh, speaking to the fact, and you guys saw this? Yes. Yes. Two we, choice words. We know <laughs> that there was a, a a post on X that was uh, just offensively anti-Semitic, basically saying that Jews hate most white people or something of that. And then, and then Musk not only retweets it, but says absolutely true, endorses it. He has since apologized repeatedly. He's tried to clarify. And when asked yesterday in a sit-down... He sit also down, went to Israel and right? toured some things there. Yeah. Right? And and while he was there... And he uh, says it wasn't an apology tour. Said, said a lot of the the right things. But um, and, he's, and he said yesterday in speaking with the, the New York Times at one of its speaking events, and it was Aaron uh, Ross Sorkin mm-hmm. of CNBC that did the interview, I asked him about it. And he said, it, it was never my intention uh, to to in any way inflame these these uh, sentiments. Essentially, I handed a loaded gun to those who hate me um, and arguably to those who are anti-Semitic. Uh, to, and for that, uh, I'm quite sorry. I, that, that is not uh, that was not my intention. Well, and it's good. OK, so good. I mean, yes, you did hand a, a loaded gun to your critics, but you also hand handed a weapon to those that are anti-Semitic mm-hmm. and uh-huh. want to report these. You better believe it. And, and want to promote these sentiments. And so he says, well, what do you say to your advertisers who are saying you're toxic, you're radioactive, we can't be associated with you? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. Uh, for those of you that couldn't quite hear that there, he was asking his advertisers to do something that's anatomically impossible. <laughs> um, it was on live television. Yes. Yeah. And so it, it was a very interesting way of going about it. You know, he doesn't want to be censored, but then you say that on live television. Uh, yeah. And and it, it, the, the notion that it's blackmail. Yeah. When we advertise on your platform, we are associating with you. With you. Yeah. We aren't blackmailing you. We're avoiding, we're protecting our interests. Yes. Uh, so a very Elon-centric interpretation <laughs> of what they're doing. By the way, um, he's got a big event today, the Cybertruck, um, which, to put it, I think, Generously, it's its beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, certainly, one of the most distinctive designs we've ever seen—a big stainless steel. It mm. Looks more like a refrigerator coming down the road than <laughs> than than a, a truck. Uh, it will be unveiled today. The first delivery. Uh, four years after it was unveiled at the LA Auto Show, uh, two years late, it is going to be uh, arriving. And he admitted that it has been a nightmare from a quality control standpoint to produce because of its radical uh, design. But he said it will be the best product ever from Tesla. And uh, his investors are taking a very wait-and-see approach at this this time. And they're going to wait to see what the rollout is. He says demand is off the charts. Well, it is a very polarizing design. I think demand probably will be off the charts with the early adopters. Come see me in a year. Mm. Uh, And and we'll see uh, what comes with that. Meantime, if we, we talk a lot about mental health. Yeah. We talked a lot about it in the wake of what happened in Oxford two years ago today. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something happening in Wayne County that's really quite novel. Yeah, you know, during a mental health crisis, free assistance can now arrive at your doorstep as a dozen mobile crisis units are being rolled out in Wayne County to help anyone in need. Now, no matter the circumstance, two trained and licensed mental health professionals with Detroit Wayne Integrated Health Network, or DWIN, will show up 
in an unmarked vehicle to assist during a mental health crisis. Now, the mental health units aim to offer de-escalation and crisis intervention services, bridging individuals with suitable behavioral health uh, resources. Uh, the units will also serve as an alternate to calling 911 or taking a trip to the emergency room, benefiting hospitals and police. Now, the safety of the healthcare professionals is a priority, as you must know. They must check in every half hour with the call center. Each of the vans are monitored at all times with a GPS tracker. Staff have already been trained. The vans were purchased with grant money. Medicaid will ensure the program continues and expands. The mobile units will become available next month. And initially, the operational hours will be from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. But once they fully get staffed, because they're still looking for people, too, to help staff, mm-hmm. the service will be 24-7. But now, is there going to be a, a, a uniformed law enforcement presence going out with them to, to address these folks in crisis? or? How is that going to work? Yeah, from what I understand, no, these they will be going out themselves. And f- they said the police were, you know, uh, uh, happy that they were doing this. It's kind of, you know, giving them uh, some help as well. As you know, Chief White has his own separate Training. mental health unit uh, right. with their cars, with the green lights instead of the red lights. And I mean, I'm sure they'll be working together. There are social workers in the cars with the police when they go. But you would think, though, you know, these some of these situations, guy, can be very dangerous. Right, right, and very delicate. But that's yes. why you need multiple skills there, Absolutely. including security. Mm-hmm. Um, Great idea. We, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it's, we could see some real potential there. Um, Patrick Kane. Uh, talking about coming to the Red Wings. Yes, briefly. He obviously signed that one-year deal worth $2.75 million. He's coming back from hip resurfacing surgery. Kane says he talked to a lot of teams when he was deciding where to go, but he just kept coming back to Detroit. My heart was in Detroit. You know, I would I would think about a, a place and uh, be all about that place for a day, and then you know, my heart and my mind would, uh, for for some reason, always come back to Detroit. So it seemed like the uh, the right fit for me, and I was, uh, you know, obviously happy they were interested as well. I love that he's he was impressed by Eiserman, by Derek Lalone. He passed mm-hmm. his physical yesterday. He skated with the team, and he hopes to get up to speed quickly. And it also shows that Steve's just not sitting pat. He's, he's no, he's not all letting the grass grow under his. Feet. This is a yeah. low risk, high reward. If he can get back to what he was. It's going to yeah. be great. Even 85%, mm-hmm. right? Right. It still be a, a game changer. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be getting in on the couch with Dr. Steve Craig, uh, kind of work out some of our relationship issues and uh, maybe give us some food for thought as we head into the weekend. But it's time for WJR's Business Beat. Here's Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to spotlight the entrepreneurial tech and startup community on WJR. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy. One of the greatest concerns of consumers these days, particularly when it comes to shopping online, is how will my personal data be treated? And now a new survey released from the Pew Research firm reveals key findings relating to how consumers feel about extending their personal data to online shopping sites and whether or not they understand how it's used or whether or not it's protected. For their survey, Pew Research surveyed 5,100 U.S. adults between May 15 and the 21st of May 2023 using Pew Research Center's American Trends Panel to better understand the view and experiences of people as it relates to giving up their personal data. First, the high-level bottom line, only one in five consumers are confident that companies who have their personal information will treat it responsibly. Among other key findings, 67% of North Americans say they understand little to nothing about what companies do with their personal data. And most North American consumers believe they have little or no control over what companies do with their personal data. 
and they're largely skeptical that privacy policies actually do anything for them at all. Some 61% of consumers believe that privacy policies are simply not effective at explaining how companies will use their personal data. And so 69% of consumers say they view these policies as simple window dressing, a checkbox, if you will, that allows them to get through that gate and get on to their purchase experience. So what might these findings mean to me if I'm a merchant selling online? Well, I actually see this as a potential competitive advantage if you handle it right. To be clear, data privacy measures and controls have three main goals, to protect a consumer's information, to make sure it's confidential and that there's integrity around its protection, to build trust with customers and to comply with data privacy laws. So where's the opportunity? Well, make sure that you have a transparent and clear privacy policy and make it clear to your consumers that you take it seriously. You make it a priority as a company. If you do that, you'll build trust and confidence and building trust and confidence no question, leads to sales. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Well, that'll put you in the mood it's, uh, to unwind a little bit and uh, get on the couch and discuss our relationship issues with Dr. Steve Craig, psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills, because it is Therapy Thursday here on JR Morning. Dr. Steve, good morning. Good morning to you guys. And our dilemma is of the of the day. It's got a, appropriately a holiday theme. It's another holiday theme here. It says, okay, over the holidays, my family and I discussed making some resolutions for next year, and I really want to make some changes, and I really want some resolutions that actually stick. But I do this every year, and they never last. Being overweight my whole life is the thing I hate the most and the thing I am most motivated to change, but it never works for me. Every year for the past 10 years, I commit to some to losing weight, but I always go back to my old ways. Why can't I commit to, to changes even when I'm super serious about them? Is there some psychological trick I need to learn? Do I need to try a different weight loss program from the five others I've tried through the years? Why are some people able to change these things, but I can't? I'd love any suggestions from you guys or Dr. Steve. Wow. I'm not going first. You know, well, <laughs> dead first, first air. Jamie's looking at me. I'm looking uh, at her. You're, you're you're not alone, right? I mean, right. I'm sitting over here trying to drop twenty, and and it's hard. But I mean, you know, I think sometimes we get caught up a lot in the diet, mm -hmm. whereas maybe we should just stick more to being healthy. Let's concentrate on being healthy and and not maybe think about the diet part. And the weight will just and, come. come. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I did this workout challenge a couple years ago, and I found that eating was the main thing, and it's not the treadmill time and everything else. So there's a relationship to food, if you're overweight, that you need to change. Mm -hmm. And I would say if you get into a group of other people doing the same thing, that's helpful. So when I did the challenge, there was accountability, and people were like, what would you have last night and all that stuff? And mm -hmm. it really works. A eating was most of it for me. So that's a really good question in this scenario, uh, the, 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 the person that has written us. Um, what is their situation with, with family and with spouses? And, and are they in a similar dilemma or are they not supportive? Or like my wife, will they just bring home a lot of salty snacks that they know like, <laughs> I, I can't resist? It, 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 but in, in the process of trying to, quote, take care of me. Um, but also a lot of healthy things, too. She lets, you know. 
me make choices, but I, you know, I'm right with you this letter writer. You make the wrong choice. Or, I, or bring home those snacks and then scowl at you when you eat them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. No, mm-hmm. she doesn't judge. And she'll, <laughs> she'll sometimes join in. I mean, we, this is something that Gail and I have talked about that we need to address. So, I mean, and that would be my question. Do you have a, do you have a buddy, as, as Jamie brought up? Do you have a mm-hmm. teammate here? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Buckle up. Okay, okay. we're going to okay, peel, we go. peel off your skull today. But first of all, we should say, you know, we get too focused on weight anyway. There, I mean, people get all spun up about I mean, there are beautiful people of all different shapes and sizes. So I, that's one thing I would address. But when people really want to do this and they come into our, my office and talk about it, that, that you have to understand that most of the time the thing that you want to get rid of that you can't get rid of, you can't get rid of it because it's serving some other purpose for you. You just don't know what that purpose is. And so when you, so for example, if I was punching myself in the head here and it hurt and I wanted to stop, but if there were some terrorists holding my family hostage who said, whenever you stop punching yourself in the head, we're going to hurt them. I'm going to keep doing it because it's serving another purpose. Mm. So there's usually within us some other purpose that you don't know what it is. So here's an example for you. When people get bariatric surgery, they get a psychological evaluation ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, and this isn't for everyone, I'm just picking the small thing out, is for many people, excess weight is a sanctuary, is a safe house, if you will. Because we can say all we want about how people are um, shallow and I'm overweight and they don't love me for who I am and and all of those things, you know, that we get to say, if, if only people weren't so shallow, they should see past my weight. But the problem is sometimes people lose a bunch of weight and if they carry with them an insecurity that I'll never be loved, but they say I'll never be loved because people don't, they're shallow about weight. If they lose the weight and no one loves them. Mm -hmm. You've lost an excuse. What? Yeah, but then what happens to you? Mm -hmm. Now it's a free fall. It's really me. I'm unlovable. I can't handle it. So for those people, for some of them, keeping the weight allows them to never test that. It, it's, it's, it allows it to never occur. So as mm-hmm. they start to lose weight, they get more anxious and insecure because now, oh, my God, what, someone might not really love me. It's better to hold it. Now, that's not the case for all of us. I'm just using an example. Yeah. I mean, I have another one for me writing a book. My, my whole life, people said, you have so many great ideas and you, you need to write a book. And I would run around saying, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. And I found myself never writing it. And I was so mad at myself. I don't have the time and I don't have. But really, when I dug in, it was because what if no one reads it? Uh Uh What if it sits on the shelf and I can just keep kicking that can down the road, complaining that I don't have the time, but I'm really afraid to test it. So how do we get past our fear of rejection in the weight loss scenario? So in the weight loss scenario, you you have to realize that sometimes we there's emotional reasons where we're unable to change. And you should work on those. It's not really an indication that you're not loved, if that's the issue. Or it's not really that you're incapable. Or whatever it is that you get to hide behind, Is you have to address that first. So that when that starts to get come up, you're able to handle it. And I just picked one example. There could be many things. But the overall point is, most of the time, the reason we can't get rid of that thing is because it's, it's giving us this other shelter and we don't know what it is. And so you have to figure that out. So when we, in my office, we'll figure out what it is you're running from first Mm -hmm. and be able to handle it. And then when you're not running from it, it's way easier to stick 
to the stick to the cause. Hmm. Huh. And and in in your experience, what are what are most people running from? Is it love? Yeah. Whether or not I'll be I'll, not, we're all afraid we're not going to be loved. You know, or for who I am and who I really am. Yeah. And we have so many things that we attach that give us shelter from that. And cosmet that cosmetic thing is a, cosmetic is a big, is a big one, but it's yeah. it's it's accomplishments, it's humor, it's uh, athleticism, all of these things we attach. If I'm not this, then then I, oh, it's true, I'm not lovable. Mm-hmm. So how do if if you're in a situation, if I was the the spouse of of this person, how do I transmit to them that I'm going to love you regardless? But I also am concerned about your health. I, I saw a, a story that was out this week that said. That obesity is now killing three times more people than cigarettes ever did. Uh-huh. Um, so, w- how do I convey I'm going to love you no matter, and I want to help you with this? How do how do you go about that? Uh, that's a great question, and that that should be part of the whole process. If if your spouse was going to really go on a weight loss, then together you should either have a conversation or come into therapy and talk about all the emotional issues that are going to come up. And I'm going to support you by continually telling you, I actually love you whether you have a whole bunch of weight or medium weight or lightweight. This doesn't matter. But I love that you're trying and I love the challenge and I love you want to be healthier and I love all the stuff that you're doing. And it's totally fine how you are. I love you for b- being who you are. My, my son-in-law has a thing that when he gets in the car with me and he sees that I haven't buckled up, he says, buckle up for Lucy. <laughs> buckle oh, up wow. for James, oh. which, which is great. So, you know, if you, you're not going to do it for yourself. Yep. Find the, the folks that you know love you, your children, your grandchildren, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's it, And I buckle up. Yeah. Good. Everyone. Who could refuse that, right? Right, right. right. Dr. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks, Thank for guys. thought. Coming off of what he sees as victories at the Big Three, UAW President Sean Fain and his leadership, they're taking their act on the road to the transplants and the Teslas of the world and saying, we want to do for you what we did for the rank and file of the big three, delivering those big wage increases and, uh, in some cases, uh, better benefits as well. Uh, UAW.org forward slash join is the website that they will be promoting uh, in the havens around plants for Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, uh, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, and others to try to get a foothold there. What are the prospects for this is this good timing we uh bring in professor in the department of management and information systems at the mike illich school of business at wayne state university professor merrick masters professor masters good morning good morning thanks for having me this morning putting this into historical context we have heard this before from the uaw that they want to unionize these these transplants uh in terms of his timing how's he doing does he well, is, is this the most effective time for him to make this this message? I think the only time for him to really launch this new massive campaign. It's on the heels of record contracts resulting from record profits. Approval of unions is at record high levels, and you have a favorable president and the National Labor Relations Board, which has shown growing interest in liberalizing how they recognize unions on a voluntary basis and monitor the activities of companies uh, to recognize unions if companies violate the National Labor Relations Act. Professor uh, Sean Fain said thousands of uh, non-union workers have contacted the UAW and asked to join the uh, organization, and they said uh, Toyota's 
7,800 worker assembly complex in Georgetown, Kentucky, uh, is among the factories that have the strongest interest in being in the union. Why is their interest so strong? Well, I think that it probably is a result of the management situation there. There are workers that may feel that they don't have a voice, that they don't have an opportunity to influence decisions with regard to pay, scheduling, et cetera. It's not so much what the companies do that is relevant as to how they do it, although both are relevant. But uh, if you don't have a voice, you're really at the whim of management. And I think what the UAW showed in this recent effort is that you can influence management in in its decision-making to a far greater extent than you can in a non-union situation. Professor Masters, Tesla employees have attempted to unionize the company before. It didn't work. What would be different now? Well, the time is different. I think the approach that the UAW is going to take is going to be different. I think the UAW in the past has relied on what I like to call a helicopter approach. It's flown in, it's dropped off its organizers and tried to organize from the top down. I think this is more of grassroots bottom-up effort to organize that is more responsive to workers in keeping with the effort of the UAW leadership to make its union more member-based and interested in raising the economic welfare of the working class in general. You say that support for unions is a a historic high and and modern-day high, Um, but is it as well received geographically in the areas where these plants are located, which are in many cases very strong right-to-work states. And we also see that these these transplants are not standing pat. They're offering these workers the wages that in many cases UAW workers are getting or close to them without the, the hassle of organizing or paying union dues. Well, I said it was the best chance they probably had, but I didn't say it was a good chance. Okay, well, then let me ask you, what are the prospects? I think it's going to be an uphill struggle. It's going to be very difficult for the reasons that you mentioned, some of which pertain to location. But also, this is not a a passive playing field, as you mentioned. The companies have already responded. They got ahead of the curve. They got legal advice early on saying, raise your wages before they start an organizing campaign so you don't get unfair labor practice charges filed against you. Uh, and they did that, and they're also probably doing a lot of other things on the ground to address what they consider to be concerns of workers so that they can keep the union at bay. One thing we can take uh, for granted in American business is that it will oppose union organizing efforts aggressively and that they will bring to bear all the resources that they possibly can muster to resist this campaign, and I would expect them to be very adept. And so when the union announces this, campaign like this, it opens itself up to criticism. And now what you're going to begin to see is people are going to say, okay, you want UAW representation, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And they'll cite the corruption of the union, they'll cite what has happened to the industry in Detroit and in America with the non-union companies having to shed hundreds of thousands of jobs over time and put workers in a very difficult situation in which, as Sean Fain recently said, in the past 20 years, 65 plants have been closed. Uh, Professor uh, Elon Musk uh, was asked about the UAW's aims uh, yesterday, and he says if Tesla gets unionized, it'll be because we deserve it and we failed in some way. 
I think that is a very common management sentiment, and it's a view held by many that unions rise because of management failures. And I think that that means that they are in tune with what they need to do to keep their workers satisfied. I'm not saying that they'll be successful in that effort or that they don't do things wrong, but I think it's important to realize that if they're not in tune with that, if they don't realize that perspective, then they're going to make a lot more mistakes than they would otherwise. Uh, Professor Masters, yesterday GM came out and said, like, we're okay, we're going to have some stock buybacks. And do you think Sean Fain is saying, see, I told you these companies were viable and we could have maybe gotten more? Well, I think certainly that, I mean, whoever's doing their PR, I would give them a second look. Uh, And I would say that this is not a a good look to give, to say that, well, you know, first we're crying wolf. We're saying we can't, we we were stretched, we're bled dry. We can't give any more. We absolutely can't give any more. And then you turn around and announce a buyback and say that you can deal with it. You can, you know, you can um, absorb the uh, increased labor costs by raising your prices or improving productivity. Ford sort of did the same sort of thing today. Um, it, it, it just makes the union um, position in this uh, look all the more believable because when the companies plead poverty, uh, what they say is, well, you're really not as poor as you seem to let people believe, and therefore you just showed that you're not. Right. But it's not without some, some costs on the part of the, the automakers. I mean, I think Mary Barra said they cut a half billion in uh, marketing, engineering, and people costs, and they're going to get another half billion squeezed out in this next quarter as, as well. And they, they also are going to be cutting back on some big-time Democrat uh, priorities, which is the expansion of EVs. They're dialing back investment in that. Well, uh, yeah, I understand that there, there will be a reaction. Part of that may be due to rising labor costs, but part of it's also due to the decline in demand for electric vehicles. You just had 4,000 dealers send a letter to the president saying that they've got too many on their lots right now. And also, it could be very well be that uh, these companies aren't run that efficiently to begin with. Um, large organizations, large corporate organizations are not necessarily known for their um, efficiency. Uh, they have a lot of deadwood in their organizations, just like any organizations do. And I think to look for ways to cut and improve performance is a continual effort on their part. Um, there is a uh, just one second. Lloyd, I mean, excuse me, Nick, what was the what was the push on, uh, on for that we just heard? Yeah, this is from the Detroit News. Ford Motor Company says it's anticipating a full-year adjusted operating income of $10 billion to $10.5 billion. That reflects a $1.7 billion in lost profits from the 41-day strike. So it was a $1.7 billion cost to them, just the strike, Correct. not including the cost of the labor contract. Um, but uh, so, yeah, they're, they're, all of them are adjusting their guidance, but the, the guidance still looks pretty good to investors, I would think. Say, I, I think the the companies have a very important point that it you know it requires a lot to invest in electrical vehicles and the timeline has been ambitious probably overly ambitious they've overestimated how high demand would be maintained yeah. dealing with some of the structural problems associated with electrical vehicles and getting people to buy them once you get beyond the the more elite financially well-to-do people who purchase the initial round of electrical vehicles on the market. 
but this is a transition period. It's going to be difficult. Um, and I think the companies have a strong business case to make, and they need to make that business case and stay focused on it. I don't think it's going to be an easy thing for them to do to win this competition for electrical vehicles. In fact, I think they're probably behind, and they're going to face relentless challenges. And we are in danger of seeing uh, further losses in our right. domestic base in the U.S., Ellen, the one thing that remains to be seen is just how heavy uh, the Biden administration's thumb will be on the scale to help Sean Fain in these organizing activities at the transplants and at Tesla. Well, I'm not, you know, I think they're going to take a balanced approach. I just heard recently that they may be lifting the, uh, the rule that they planned on issuing on foreign content. Uh, and that may make, make it a little bit easier for the companies to move forward in some of their mm. joint ventures, which have not proved so favorable to union organizing. Now, that's secondhand information that I have, but I think I would watch developments like that very carefully right. and see what their actions are judged more by what they say yeah. than what they do. Merrick Masters, we appreciate your insights, sir. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. When we come back, it was a jetliner unlike any other because it was not running on conventional fuel. We'll tell you what was keeping that aircraft aloft next on JR Morning. That's coming up at 749. We know that if you're hearing squeaks, clanks, bangs out of your furnace, it's probably a good indication that maybe you need to check it out and, uh, you, you got to take it seriously. Our friends at CNC Heating and Air Conditioning say, really, that is one of the biggest indicators that you've got a problem. Also, if you see that your utility bills are creeping up, and not just because the season's getting colder, that if they're higher when you compare them to last year, if your family keeps getting sick, if your unit keeps needing repairs, and if you have a short cycling problem, those are the big five indicators that your heating and air conditioning system needs problems that should be addressed. And if you've got any of those issues, then call our friends at CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. For 75 years, three quarters of a century, the Corian family has been delivering exceptional customer service to their customers. It's how they've become one of Michigan's most trusted heating and cooling companies and referred by our Inside Outside guys. So make sure you get that furnace tune-up. And now could not be a better time because there are carrier cool cash savings on the table if you should need a new carrier furnace. The best step, call 800-MY-FURNACE, 800-693-8762. You'll get a free 21-point comfort survey, find out exactly what your home's needs are, and then if you do hear those clanks, squeaks, or see the other warning signs, and you need installation of a new carrier and heating and cooling system, they can do that for you, and they can do it tomorrow. Visit cncheat.com. That's cncheat.com. Carrier. Turn to the experts. And when you're at the water cooler, perhaps you're talking to friends about something you've heard on one of our shows here on uh, AM 760, and you say, gosh, I wish I could somehow uh, share this with you. Well, there's an easy way to do that. You just go to thegreatvoice.com. All of our uh, big interviews are there uh, on a podcast, including complete shows, so that you never have to miss an episode if uh, your travels take you either outside of our AM listening area. You can always stream it, too, using our WJR app. A 787 passenger plane took off from Heathrow, uh, the the airport in London, headed to New York this week, made the flight without a single drop of conventional jet fuel based on fossil sources. 
So what exactly were they burning to keep that big plane aloft? WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joins us this morning with the answer. Good morning, Marie. And good morning, Guy. Well, you can call this the fat flight. The Virgin Atlantic Boeing 787 flight was entirely powered by used cooking oil and waste animal fat mixed with a small amount of synthetic kerosene made from waste corn. So it was all waste material. Virgin's founder, Richard Branson, was on board along with corporate and government officials, engineers, and journalists. Proponents of this type of high-fat, low-emission fuel said this is a step toward achieving something called Jet Zero. Sustainable aviation fuel could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 70%, and it could help propel the international aviation industry towards this net zero target by 2050, although a lot of people think that is very ambitious. The industry has a way to go before making this kind of fuel available across the board. Domestic production of the fuel stood at almost 60 million gallons in 2022. Uh, That accounts for less than 0.1% of the jet fuel used by the major airlines. The FAA set a goal of producing a billion gallons a year to meet the needs of the industry so they have a long way to go the fuel is expensive it's Mm -hmm. hard to make because of the tight supply of materials and uh guy the group uh, aviation environmental uh, federation says the industry has a long long way to go uh before anything close to producing enough of this fuel for what they call guilt free flying so there are some skeptics out there about all this oh come on can't they just pull that jet into the mcdonald's drive through <laughs> and say hey, that, that old yeah. uh, fry oil you got back there can we yeah. can you load me up yeah uh, exactly no it doesn't work that way <laughs> well marie like it got there to new york now it's going to have to fly back to london are they going to use the same type of uh, fuel to go back or they're going to use conventional There's, jet fuel no, no they're supposed to use the same type of fuel but we'll see what happens <laughs> How dramatic is the conversion on those engines, those jet engines, in order to use the biofuels? Now that I I didn't, uh, I don't know how much of a, uh, like, reconnoitering they have to do with the jet engines to get it to work this way. But apparently that's not as much of an issue as getting the fuel itself and making it. Marie, you know, people calling it a gimmick, but others are saying at least it raises awareness because this could be something we work toward in the future. Right, right, right. right. And, you know, uh, a lot of the international uh, people who are on the environmental scene really, really poo-poo flying uh, anywhere because of the impact on the environment. So this is like the first step into this area where they hope to uh, be able to fly, uh, as they say, guilt-free. But based on some of these numbers, I mean, we're producing 16 million gallons of this type of fuel right now, but they need more than a billion a year to meet the needs of the industry. So that that is just a long way to go. Well, and no one's flying less. Right. No, right. more. Exactly. More. Right. Exactly. And yep. can I that, just take a correct. quick poll amongst uh, ourselves? Anybody, are you feeling guilty when you fly somewhere? No. You no. Know? No. <laughs> <laughs> so we're okay, we're okay with that. Uh, yeah. And then we see John Kerry uh, flying place to place, uh, claiming to be um, advocating on behalf of the climate. You know, one guy, right. one G4. Uh, going where he needs to go, burning all kinds of conventional fossil fuels. So 
you know, they, they, they've got to start walking the walk, too, uh, maybe, before the rest of us are going to saddle ourselves with higher ticket prices and things like that. Interesting thing, though, when it goes by me, will it, you know, if, they, if it taxis past me, does it smell like French fries? You know, I wondered the same thing, if it smells different or if it looks different in some way, and I, I, I don't. I, that I don't know. But like that's if a it good smelled question. like McDonald's. Yeah. Well, yeah, French fry, right? Yeah. There or fried The, the bi- <laughs> biofuel cars, the first ones that they put on the road, you you did, it smelled like... Uh, like some cooking oil. It smelled like cooking oil, and it's, yeah. you know, warm cooking oil, so it kind of gave you that fry craving. It, you. You know, it was, Ugh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not, that's not good. I'm going to tell you that fried cooking oil is going to do something to you. You yeah. can't inhale it or something. Yeah. As, as, <laughs> as if I need one more reason to crave French fries. Uh, Marie, thanks so much. Really, really interesting story. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is a, uh, we, we also, we, we talked earlier and if you, in case you had a, a missed it, we had a talk with a funeral home director earlier today talking about the fact that here in the state of Michigan, and I know you guys were as surprised as I wow. was, that there is no law requiring the refrigeration of human remains upon death. Yeah, something I hadn't thought of until I walked through the door today. Yeah, you do. You weren't worried about your remains this morning, neither was I. I wasn't. <laughs> or anybody now else. Yeah, but if I own a restaurant, you best uh, believe my right. food better be refrigerated. Well, that's, <laughs> you, yeah, we're, we're, we're forcing people to treat leftovers better than our loved yeah. ones. And, and it, but it was really eye-opening. Vern Pixley uh, was the gentleman's name. There are two Senate bills out there that would change the way this is addressed, make new mandates. Not everybody in the fuel industry is, is on board with it. Uh, we heard some pushback from some friends that uh, are in that business, and we'll be exploring both sides of this. Uh, but something that they're saying, our laws are outdated by decades. I think we're only one of five states uh, that doesn't mandate that. So Michigan that is way, way behind, behind our neighbors when it comes to taking care of our loved ones upon death. You can also find that at thegreatvoice.com. We'll be back. Serial liar and fraud artist George Santos uh, holding a news conference right now uh, outside uh, the Capitol. Um, we Doing were, much of the same. Yeah, uh, listening to him, uh, and and not a lot of contrition, not a lot of contrition there for the body of lies or addressing well, anything. Well, he didn't speak about himself at all. He yeah. was just talking about chaos in Congress. He was talking about the protesters at the tree lighting, which has nothing to do with him. What he did, yeah. Um, but, yeah, not addressing the issues raised by nope. the congressional Republican. Ethics report Correct. that condemned him on so many levels or addressing that, but saying, well, you know, what about that guy that pulled the fire alarm? How come he's still here? He, of course, brought <laughs> up that he has not been convicted of anything, which is an argument some are discussing when they make their choice tomorrow. And it's precedent setting mm-hmm. that this uh, that the, this could set a precedent where you would see tit for tat expulsions and things like that. All legitimate concerns from people like uh, Representative Bill Heisinger from the mm-hmm. west side of our state who has said that's what's giving me pause in terms of expelling him. Um, some stories uh, today from an, an economic standpoint we want to share with you. Uh, first and foremost, Detroit led the nation, Metro Detroit, in home price increases. Uh, up 3.9% nationwide, up 6.7% here. So homes uh, values growing at a faster rate is one way you could look at it. Um, but we're still far behind the rest of the nation. The median home price uh, throughout the nation is $392,000. In Metro Detroit, 
The median sales price is $250,000. So uh, still one of the most affordable places to own a home. U.S. economic growth for the third quarter, we thought it was 4.9%. They've now revised that upward to 5.2%, which is a pretty healthy pace. But looking at the fourth quarter, they expect expect that to uh, shrink quite a bit for the October-December period to 1.8%. The term Bidenomics, NBC, notes that uh, President Biden has used that in speeches 101 times since June. He hasn't used the term since November 1st. So as we bid November goodbye, apparently the term Bidenomics is something that we will say goodbye to as well. And talking about the economy, and he's talked a lot about how he's brought inflation down and that uh, everything is trending in the right direction and taking a victory lap over that, we get this uh, from the Senate, that the typical American household, did you see this, must now spend an additional $11,000 annually just to maintain the same standard of living they enjoyed in January of 21, right before inflation took off at 40-year highs. $11,000. Nobody is earning $11,000 more than they did in January of 21. They're not. Which is why the term Bidenomics is no longer being used (laughs) by the President of the United States. Um, It really sends a clear message as to why folks are just so frustrated and are not feeling it when asked about uh, the, uh, the the Biden economics policies. Um, just speaking about the month of November, the Pistons have not won in the month of November. Oh I'm just God. putting that out there. So okay. they're, they're deflating while everybody else is Hold inf- on. In- in- they are playing at New York tonight, so they can win in this month if they win tonight. I mean, what are just the odds that you run into a team that goes really cold for one night? I mean, you would think that <laughs> this is unbelievable, unprecedented. We want to hear from the owner. Where I want to know he? where Tom Gores is. He, he, nobody's saying anything. Nobody's no, just, heard from him. You know, uh, there are so many nice people in that organization. I think of the, the wonderful discussion we had with Arn Tellum at the Goodfellows Breakfast, um, doing their best and have such high hopes. Meant saying this team was a work in progress. It is. But the key word there is progress. And right. we're not seeing that. Yet. Correct. Um, so yeah, a lot to be, uh, concerned about there. We lost, uh, I think a, a, a giant in the, uh, in the faith community here in Detroit. Yeah. The Reverend Charles Adams, he was the former pastor and then pastor emeritus of Detroit's historic Hartford Memorial Baptist church on Detroit's Northwest side, where he earned the reputation of a preacher's preacher. He died yesterday afternoon. He was 86. His sister, Edith uh, Clifton said he died following a long bout with pneumonia and after cardiac arrest, and he was surrounded by his family. The church has been the funeral site for high-profile figures, singers, educators, activists, and others. Uh, it's seen politicians ranging from Al Gore to Jeff Figer greet attendees on the campaign trail. He was hailed as uh, by Ebony Magazine as one of the nation's greatest black preachers and most influential Americans, uh, African-Americans. And, you know, Guy, uh, one of the things he would do, because he spoke so many different languages, he would talk about how he would say thank you to the Lord. And he would say, if I was German, I would say it this way. And if I was, you know, uh, Mexican, I would say it this way. And he would just go through all of these different languages of how he would say thank you. And he even did. He said, if I was deaf, he, he used his hands. Really? And, you know, he, sign language. Yes. I mean, he he was uh, he was a giant man. He really was. And uh, going to miss him a lot. He, he did a lot for the city and the community as well. And yeah. Dynamo. Yes.
just Absolutely. that's the word that 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 that, that comes to mind. Uh, Santa Ono. Yeah, a different Santa than <laughs> some might think in this month. Uh, yes. Santa Ono, the president of the University of Michigan, made his first public comment since the NCAA began investigating the football program. He was at the Detroit Economic Club, and he was asked by Devin Skillian of Local 4, you know, about all of it, about these suspensions to Harbaugh, the reputation of the football team now, and here's what Ono had to say. And then this was in relation to to saying, "Hey, your coach has been on the sidelines more than he's been uh, half the uh, time. Yeah, only off. been a, yeah six six of twelve games. He has been there. Well, you know, it's true that uh, he has been on the sideline for six games, but we won all six of those games. And <laughs> I want to say it's really a credit to him. You know, uh, the coach has talked to me about that situation, and has said that he knows nothing about what happened, and I trust him." I think he's talking about sign stealing. And there's another thing that Harbaugh is being investigated, and that's the recruiting problems during COVID. But he said that he trusts his coach. They called him a man of honor. He's a man of honor. Um, Everyone who knows him knows that. It's an ongoing investigation. We'll see what happens. But I just wanted to say just very, very clearly, and it's no secret to, to people, that I trust the guy. I think he... Is one of the great coaches out there in NFL or in, in NCAA, and uh, and and he uh, the, the the football team loves him, and no, his coaches no love him. Well, that's true. The kids definitely love him. And Devin asked him, "Do you think Harbaugh? Are you confident Harbaugh will be the coach next year?" I hope so. I mean, like I said, we have to wait and see what happens with all these yeah. uh, investigations. Um, he is uh, a great coach and means a lot to the institution. I hope so, was the answer. Yeah, and, and understanding that, that he was, one of his first official acts as president was to go to the Board of Regents and saying, we need an ethics commission here. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that we are always operating uh, with our ethics intact and with ethics being the first consideration. And and Devin asked him, so w- within that regard, I mean, did you, are you concerned? Do you feel like you've gotten to the bottom of it uh, yourself? Do you think you understand what Connor Stallion was about and who put him up to it? I've never met the guy. Um, apparently he was in a room that I was in. Uh, I don't know him. Um, I haven't gotten to the bottom of it because uh, these sorts of investigations, you have to be at arm's length, and so their NCAA is actually involved in that. Sure. Yeah. So we'll let it uh, take its course. Certainly I take it very seriously. This is an academic institution, yeah. uh, to be frank. and. Ethics and integrity are central and core to what we do. It's a cornerstone to a great university. So as you know, people who have been found to be involved or to transgress proper process have been held accountable, and that's the right thing to do. So the integrity of the University of Michigan, I take that very, very seriously. I think that's a great answer, not shying away from these questions. I'm saying that people like Chris Partridge, when Mm -hmm. they deviated from our protocols and the policies that we have in place, um, they'd suffer the consequences. Maybe also talking about Weiss, the offensive coordinator right. who was let go. We don't know what happened there. Michigan, by the way, 12-0, and 0, ranked number two in the country, taking on Iowa in the Big Ten championship game on Saturday. And yeah. Harbaugh will be on the sidelines. Yeah, he, the coach is back. It is 814 on AM 760. When we return, it is the newest and the most high-tech road in America. It can charge your car while you're driving on it if you have an EV that's equipped with the right equipment. But it's really about the startup community here as well. We'll discuss that with one of the innovators behind it next on JR Morning.
We've got something nice for you, and we'll do this in the next uh, segment, but the Amadeus Electric Quartet is in concert December 22nd at the Emerald Theater in Mount Clemens. We've got a pair of tickets to see them. Uh, we'll give you a cue to call in a few minutes here, but that's uh, going to be coming up just past our uh, 8.30 half hour there. Uh, probably uh, when you went to bed last night, you might have put your cell phone in a cradle where it could use inductive technology to charge itself. Mine, I just put it on top of my alarm clock, Yeah, Mm -hmm. which is, it's great. Uh, What if an electric vehicle could do the same while driving down a specially equipped road, that it could inductively charge itself on the road it was driving down? Well, that is no longer an abstract concept. That is a reality on 14th Street, here in Detroit in the Innovation District near the Michigan Central Rail Station. And it's uh, the company behind it is a really innovative, interesting startup called Electrion that is proving its concept uh, in this zone. Dr. Stefan Tonger is Vice President of Business Development for Electrion, and we welcome him to JR Morning. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This is really, so you've, you've basically turned 14th Street into a laboratory it's it's actually an electric road right now and and the, the beauty of it is when you come here and you look at this road it's pretty much like any road that you see out there so uh, as for outstander you don't see what is so special with this road um, but the capability it has is it can charge a vehicle just like you said wirelessly while you drive and then we also have a stationary charger here in the area so that they can uh, charge vehicles while they stop if you think about shuttles and last mile delivery vehicles doctor you have to uh, you have to have a, a receiver in in that ev that you're driving to get this charge that's correct so it, as your phone has a, a type of coil in, in it and then you have a coil underneath that in the charger the same way here you have a coil have to have a coil underneath the vehicle and we've been working with ford in this project to integrate our receiver into that vehicle um but we're working with many and that's one of the reasons we're here right working together with the oem get this technology on the vehicle so that it's widely available for both fleet clients and passenger vehicles um, for the public doctor i heard that even you know if it snows if the elements are sort of on top of the road it doesn't matter that's correct. Uh, How so, does that work? Uh, well, it's it's based on the induction principle. So magnetic field, water or snow, doesn't really impact uh, that field. So it it's it's it goes through it, and it doesn't heat it up either because it's very efficient. And we've actually done this before in other parts of the world, like in Sweden, where we have snow as well, and. It's been well proven that this works in all weather. Um, and then on the other hand, this is good why we're here, so we can prove this out. You know, this is Michigan and Detroit is a great area for testing new technology when you come first to the market. So we know we're talking about this high-tech corridor that Michigan Avenue could be turned into a, this, you know, super-connected roadway, maybe an inductive roadway as well between Detroit and Ann Arbor. Would that be phase two, or would that be the, the, the likeliest application of this uh, going forward when we take it into a larger application? I do, I do believe so. So we're working together with Michigan DOT, who is the sponsor behind this, and the state of Michigan to install this uh, in Michigan Avenue as the next step. This was the first step. Let's say, um, you know, uh, 
three quarters of a mile, uh, 0.8 mile on Michigan Avenue, which is the next day, the state's going out for bids later next year, 24. So uh, looking at more transit application then, so here we have a shuttle with last mile delivery in, the, in Michigan Avenue, think about transit application with buses. And I think what you're saying here with automated core, that makes perfect sense when you have vehicles driving automatically, why would you need to plug them in and have a person plug them in? It should be wireless and we should be able to reduce sizes of batteries to make the vehicles more cheaper and available, accessible for all uh, all persons. Dr. Tonger, how fast of a charge uh, do you get with this? So depending on with, with what vehicle type you are, uh, if you're a passenger car, you would have one receiver, about 20, 25 kilowatts. If you are uh, a, a, a bus, you can get three receivers, a, a truck more. So we can deploy, it's a modular system where we can, you know, supply more energy than what you need to propel yourself. So if you drive on it, let's say we, we're aiming to give you maybe a boost by two to four uh, X more than what you are driving on. So it'd be better than what my Lionel train got when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, you could, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, and, and the beauty of it is we can start smartly. It's not about electrifying all the roads from day one. We're looking now at where are the fleet costs? Because fleet customers, drive, uh, their vehicles are predictable. They drive them same routes every day, you know, so we can look. Where are they idling, you know, during the night or while they come at the loading dock or at the bus stops? So we can start installing this system with very low cost and low investment where it makes perfect sense in their operations. And then where you have corridors, like we mentioned, Michigan Avenue or other places, then it makes perfect sense because then we can share charging infrastructure. We're not thinking, right. you know, one <clears throat> plug for each vehicle. And if you can do that across vehicle classes, imagine how the transition to electric doesn't only become like a moral thing. It becomes like a, a cost, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. Then it becomes really sustainable in that way. What's cool is Electrion is one of more than 60 tech and mobility startups that are members of Detroit New Lab. This is this innovation hub anchored at the Michigan Central Station. So new ideas are coming out right from there. And I think that's cool. Yeah, I think what sets this apart from other places is the public-private partnerships. So the the fact that we're working with Michigan DOT, uh, with Detroit DOT, with the utility DTE, with Ford, with the engineering companies, and with New Lab, Michigan Central. I mean, there's just so many stakeholders that have made this possible because they are in a in a state of mode that where they embrace innovation, where where they don't say, you know, okay, this doesn't work just because we got to know, because frankly, this is the first time we're doing it in the U.S. And so, of course, there is a little bit of uncertainty. How do we actually do this? And mm -hmm. so it's a lot about education, a lot about collaboration. Now, as we've done it, now there's no question anymore, does this work? You're all welcome here to 14th Street, and you can see that it works. The vehicle charges while it's driving. And then it's easier to build from that and, and you know, integrate with other OEMs and, and fleet partners and eventually open this up for the public to make their life um, and, and, and journey towards electric and more sustainable transportation easier. We, we have less than a minute left, and that's just really ambitious. I think it's a great idea, but maybe the more practical application would be in my own garage. Will Electrion someday be able to convert the floor of my garage so I can have this inductive technology right there so I don't have to plug in? I just pull, park, and we could do this at places that use carports. Absolutely. And that's what we're looking for, you know, in the next steps. Uh, so we're working with Toyota and we have a partnership with them. So to actually retrofit, um, you know, the vehicles and put some sort of charger indoors. 
But right now, to get to scale and to get to good business models and business cases, fleet clients represent right now at least the step right. number one. So then we get this, uh, you know, massively available, uh, and then we can build out from there uh, because then we can get a good uh, business case behind it. All right. But I, I love the idea because I know I'm going to be the first guy to forget to plug in in, um, in my <laughs> <Yeah>. family. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Tonger, thanks very much. Remember Holland Oates had a song called Say It Isn't So? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Say It Isn't So. Those guys are talking about breaking up. They're, they're they are not with one another now. I know. Uh, kind of I a, can't go for that. that uh, no, no can Well, that's what he's saying. You want to sell off part of our song catalog? No can do. We no got this joint do. agreement. Yeah. So we finally learned what was behind the restraining order that Daryl Hall was seeking against John Oates. Uh, so there's uh, trouble within that partnership. There's also a lot of trouble right now within the ranks of the state uh, Republican Party. We know that uh, Christina Caramo, the new chairwoman, uh, very activist, uh, the grassroots supporters wanted to shake things up. Uh, by bringing her into that post to uh, kind of push out the establishment Republicans that they felt had been uh, taking the uh, the party in the wrong direction. Well, now some of those that were behind her promotion and her uh, election to that post want her gone. And she is reacting, a purge of sorts that we could be witnessing within the Republican Party here in the state of Michigan, documenting all of it is Craig Mauger, state government and politics reporter for the Detroit News. Craig, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. So the, in many cases, these are former Karama reporters, uh, supporters, rather, uh, that, that have been, uh, you know, that, that put her where she is. What's happening to their influence within the party? Uh, it's It's gone awry. I mean, this, this whole situation with, disagreements over the ways Christina Caramo is running this party is leading to splinter after splinter after splinter and the splinters have their own splinters. Wow. Wow. And and they have all these conflicts and disagreements and then she dissolves the party's conflict resolution committee. Yeah. Yeah. And that's essentially it, it's hard to grasp even all the changes <laughs> that she unveiled in an email that was sent out to members of the Michigan Republican Party State Committee at 10 p.m. on Friday, the night after Thanksgiving, all of a sudden this lengthy email shows up in their inboxes. And in the email, Karamo essentially says, I'm overhauling how the committees work. I'm removing some people from their committee assignments. I'm getting rid of two of our committees. We're no longer going to have this conflict resolution committee. Why does that matter? Well, that committee was supposed to resolve any types of disagreement between delegates, between members of the state committee, so if there was a feud over who should be seated at a state convention, an important state convention where decisions about, uh, you know, who gets nominated for certain positions, what the policies of the parties are, if there is a disagreement about that, that would go to this conflict resolution committee, and this panel of members of the state committee would decide how to handle it. Now that committee's gone, and presumably, according to members of the state committee, those duties to decide these types of feuds are now going to fall on Karamo herself. So that means more power for Christina Karamo. Craig, previously reported you found that there wasn't much money in the bank accounts. I mean, what's going to happen? There's a major election coming next year. That's the big question. I mean, that's the question we're all watching right now. You have this dynamic where in the public polling, the polling that we can see, Donald Trump 
is beating Joe Biden in Michigan by a few percentage points. You can argue about whether that's legitimate or not or whether to believe the polls, but that's what the polling shows. Donald Trump has a real chance to win Michigan in 2024. Meanwhile, you have the Michigan Republican Party in a state of utter disrepair. They have no money. The state committee is in an open war on each other. They can't really figure out what to do to help candidates actually win elections. Can Donald Trump win Michigan? Can the Republicans compete in a U.S. Senate race for an open U.S. Senate seat when the Michigan Republican Party is not functioning? It's, a, it's an amazing and fascinating question to watch play out here. Well, and a larger question is, can they regain, regain control of the legislature? I mean, this is a 40-year yeah. turnaround in power. Uh, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and all of it requires money. Uh, so if, if the, the grassroots, this movement has been going on for a while now. There is antipathy towards the former establishment that was there. How are they going to react? Are they going to, I mean, is it looking more likely that they're going to remove Christina Caramo? And if so, where do they go from from there? You know, uh, it, it's hard to say at this point. The bar to remove a party chair is extremely high. And for them to be able to hit that, they're going to need, about, you know, according to whose rules you're following, they're going to need 60% to 75% of the state committee. There's about 100 people on the state committee. And as it stands right now, these are the most ardent grassroots activists in the state. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are the people most likely to support Christina Caramo. If she loses 60% of them, that would be incredibly striking. It's almost difficult to perceive that happening. But it could happen just because of all of the fumbles and mistakes that have have occurred in literally nine months. She's only been in this position for nine months, and the party has gone into a state where it can't raise money. And and her and don't know where the money is that they've already raised. (laughs) Yeah, no one knows how much they've raised. No one knows except a few people in her administration how much they have. And people within her administrative team have actively and openly said that they don't want the big donors' money. So it's it's just an incredible situation that they found themselves in. And I think that's kind of the the point that we're at for the Michigan Republican Party. The grassroots has won control of this party. They have kicked out the establishment. The establishment is all all but gone from from this party apparatus. They have no say. They have no chance right now of taking the party back. The question is, are you going to have people leading the party from the grassroots wing who want to work with the establishment, who at least want to try to raise money from donors that have supported the party in the past? want to try to win those people's votes? Or are you going to have a faction leading the party who is trying to kick those people out and actively criticizing them every step of the way? That's where they're at. That's the crossroads they're at right now. Craig, I want to ask you about the Macomb County clerk, Anthony Forlini, who says he's a little uh, concerned about the governor's decision to hold uh, special elections in January and April because it could set up uh, local elected, uh, local officials, rather, clerk officials up for failure. Yeah, I mean, this is something that people should be paying attention to, in my opinion, just because it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story about how our elections are operated. We've heard so much about administering the vote and trying to establish trust, trust and integrity in the vote counting system. The governor had a decision to make last week when to schedule special elections for two open state house seats that had been held by Democrats. And she decided, she announced this on Wednesday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, that these special elections would be held January 30th 
and April 16th. Those are not traditional election dates in Michigan. So for clerks in those communities, in those state house districts in the Westland area and the Warren area, they now have to administer up to six elections next year. That's an incredible amount of work. Right. A lot of these clerks are saying this is unheard of, and they're a little bit unsure of how this is going to play out. There's an incredible number of possibilities for how this could go wrong. And we're sitting here now a few weeks, you know, a couple of months away from this vote. And then as soon as that vote takes place on January 30th, they have to turn around and administer the presidential primary election on February 27th. Anthony Forlini, the Macomb County clerk, wants the governor to reconsider these dates. He, he says the special primary for these state house seats should be moved from January 30th, the new election date, to February 27th to coincide with the presidential primary election. It's unlikely the governor will change her mind. But, I mean, just the fact that he's putting these kind of statements out there show the level of concern that he has. And he's saying he would he would have done this whether it was a Democratic governor or a Republican governor. He says That's it's, correct. Yeah, that the cost he's, of the county is the same. To, yeah, he is trying to say that for him, this is not a political thing. He is not criticizing the governor because she's a Democrat. He's criticizing the policy decision that was made here as to when to hold this these special elections. He is saying the governor's decision was political, however, because she is trying, in his mind, to fill these two vacant state house seats as quickly as possible. Because keep in mind, Democrats don't have a majority in the state house right now, and they will not get their majority back until these seats are filled. But isn't it just necessity since those people won different races? They have to fill it. They have to fill it. But the question is, when do you hold the special elections and do you do it on days where you're already holding elections? That's what some of the clerks want. They want to see these special elections occur on February 27th mm. and in May to coincide with elections that would already happen instead of the governor's decision to set up completely new elections right. and make yeah. administer them. And the difference is about a month. Um, these House members will take office about a month earlier if they, than they would have if they would have held the special general election in May. All right. Well, Craig, we will await to see how that shakes out and, and see how many more Heads may be rolling in influential positions in the state Republican Party as Christina Caramo tries to either silence her critics or tries to firm up her own power base. Thank you for your reporting, Craig, as always. Thanks for having me on. All right. When we come back, and I want to kind of solicit some help from you on this. By the way, we've got those tickets to give away to the Amadeus Electric Quartet. But why is it that we're having such a hard time learning how to use roundabouts? (laughs) Why is it that they four out of the five most crash-prone intersections in this in this metro Detroit area are roundabouts? Why aren't we getting any better at this? If you've got some solutions to this, let us know about it. 1-800-859-0957. 1-800-859-0WJR. You're on JR Morning. So SEMCOG uh, every year puts out its annual list of the most, and they don't call them the most dangerous intersections anymore, but the most crash-prone intersections out there. And four out of the top five are intersections that are supposed to be safer because they are roundabouts. So four out of the top five frequent crash sites are those little 
roundabout things, and and <laughs> this is going on several years now. Uh, but number one is 14 Mile Road West at Orchard Lake Road, uh, which has been there for a while. About four, about four years, maybe four or five years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you're right about that. And uh, Tom's joining us. I'm and sorry, I just jumped in. Hi, Tom. Just, just, what if I crash your party? <laughs> as long as you don't crash our roundabout. Yes. Come on, um, but, you know, it begs the question, why aren't we getting better? You know, you there's going to be a learning curve with these things. But why isn't there just kind of an organic improvement? As people well, use them well, and as they become more familiar. To that point, Guy, how do we learn? We learn by failure. So you crash, and you learn from your crash, <laughs> and you get better the next time. You don't crash as hard. And it's not as bad a crash. It's just more of a little bump. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Fender bender. From, no, but the, seriously, though, I don't understand why it's such a... It, it is confusing, I think, at first. But the worst thing to do when you're going to roundabout is to stop. stop. Yeah. <laughs> don't stop if you don't know what to do. Right. Yeah. And they sit there, and then... Of course ultimately there's a crash yeah right because the the person behind you of yeah. course is not giving you the appropriate safety cushion <laughs> for when you I think unexpectedly yeah. stop i was gonna say i think it's patience people have no patience driving these no. days and you just have to yield yeah, yeah. yeah. i yeah. i just crashed the car because i was supposed to do a, a contest here so right now uh be caller number nine at one 800 wjr 859 to win a pair of tickets to see amadeus electric quartet uh, this is a really enchanting evening. Uh, this is a, a group from Romania uh, that do both classical pop and rock classics. It's a lot of fun. December 22nd at the Emerald Theater in Mount Clemens. So be caller number nine right now at 1-800-859-0WJR. Oh, we just, we had a caller that I was going to get to. She's, we, so we had a caller. We, we, we requested a couple callers there. Uh, uh, you know, asking why is it we can't get better? She says because people just don't want to learn. They just generally we resist change. Mm -hmm. But you would think that if it's going to drive up your insurance rates and it's going to bash up your car, that you would, <laughs> you know, just kind of learn. I made it a all. priority to learn to go correctly around a roundabout because the consequences are pretty severe. Good for yeah. you. So, so, so what did you just go around and well, around and around and around <laughs> yes, <laughs> until you figure out how do you get out of this thing? I mean, I do them pretty well. I don't like them necessarily, but I I can ride. You know, do the roundabouts very well. I've learned how to do it over the years. They've been they've been there for years. Man, and in Europe, you know, it is just yeah. such just, a much more yeah. efficient way. I love it. Keeps them, it moving. There's it, no it light. You just yield and move on. Yeah. When when we first can I tell you a quick story roundabout story? Do I have time? Sure. Go as right. long as you don't go roundabout, I won't go. And I, I tend to do that sometimes. <laughs> when we first moved to Michigan more than a decade ago, I learned about this roundabout on Off Lee Road in Brighton, and there's three in a row. It, they were brand new. They were just put in. There were crashes every other day. My wife and my kids had not moved here yet, so I, I told them how to get here. They got here. My wife ended up in these three-in-a-row roundabouts, and she called me in the midst of the roundabout. She goes, what do I do? How do I get where, – where did you send me to? And I said, oh, I know. I'm sorry about that. I forgot to tell you about the roundabouts here in Michigan. Uh, just wait till I tell you about the uh, Michigan U-turn on the Michigan left. Michigan that's, left. Yeah. She said, I'm going to take this roundabout west and go right home to San Diego <laughs> yeah, yeah, where I came from. <laughs> no, she she loves it here, and so does my entire family. Well, that's... Uh... Oh, so she figured it out. She did, the yeah. End of the she story. did not crash. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't finish the story. Yeah. Yeah, she survived. She's still driving Yeah, she made it to the... <laughs> Ten years later. <laughs> I'll get her. Um, <laughs> did you see the news yesterday that the Wolverine, the mighty... Fierce wolverine has been placed on the EPA's endangered species list. Mm. Yes. Loss of habitat, also because of climate 
change, that they're seeing changes in the uh, in, in the habitat. And so uh, it's going to have protection now in the lower 48 states. Uh, that does not mean that they get a higher seed in the college football playoffs. Uh, different <laughs> issue entirely. But, yeah, it is. Uh, I, and I didn't also didn't realize, did you know that the Wolverine's a weasel? It's in the weasel family. <laughs> oh. Really? Yeah. No, don't Again, tell Harbaugh. speaking of the That's four-legged. Right. <laughs> yeah, not the yeah. two-legged, the four-legged. But uh, they are, uh, they're an amazing animal, but they are they are ferocious. They're they're vicious. Yeah. And I think that's why they named our the football team the Wolverines. But there was a, a bit, I forget where this bit was about why the why the um why Michigan does not have a mascot. And was that a commercial? Did you see that? Why don't they? Because and they had, they had the mascot of the Wolverine in a little cage and it was tearing people apart. So, huh. so that's why we don't have a mascot. There's yeah. a, a stuffed version at the Towsley Museum in Schembechler Hall, and mm-hmm. it's like growling. You could see the teeth. It looks like it would be, you know, something you don't want to encounter. Yeah. Yeah. We have been documenting what's going on with EVs. Uh, the General Motors is now considering adding more hybrids. Uh, the demand is falling. The dealer sending the letter yesterday telling the Biden administration to, to, to pump the brakes. Now Consumers Report came out with their reliability numbers. EVs had 79% more problems than vehicles with internal combustion engines. So really just documenting the idea that there are some real growing pains here as even with the early adopters who are pretty tolerant of the fact that they're trying a new technology are reporting these new vehicles as being problem prone. Uh, We should also point out that in terms of even when it was... uh, E, not EVs, uh, conventional IC engines. Uh, Ford, number 22 for reliability. Lincoln, 23. Then comes GMC, Jeep. Uh, but they all beat Mercedes-Benz, which was next to last. But Chrysler was dead last. Mm. Mm. So, uh, and I've not never been a huge fan always of the Consumer Reports reliability numbers. I think J.D. Power is a little more accurate. But mm-hmm. this really uh, devastating report, both for the automakers and uh, in terms of uh, EVs. Um, so we'll see what comes of that. In the meantime, uh, Kevin made it through his roundabout. He is here. <laughs> he's he's ready for all talk. What is it with the beer? You guys have... The beard? The beer. You don't bring yeah, beer yeah. to the studio every no, day with yeah. you? <laughs> what's, what's your problem? Not at 8.56 a.m. No, up. we had the folks from uh, Gaylord come on up. And uh, it's a beautiful they time of year. Gifts. They got a, they brought gifts. They brought some beer for uh, Kevin Deets and myself. And uh, we're going to talk with uh, Paul Beach now this morning regarding the amazing things that are happening up in Gaylord, Michigan. I think I don't know if winter is more uh, if winter is busier up there than the summertime. But I think it's a year round spot. So we'll get into it. It's I love Gaylord. Oh, it's incredible. In fact, I'm going to be heading up there about an hour from now, oh, which wow. means that uh, Lloyd and Jamie have a great we show got tomorrow. This. We got it. Uh, and we should, can I only ask, you've got the Midnight Velvet Big Buck beer. Uh, Kevin has the Buck Naked Blonde Ale. Is there, was there a reason? What? Yes, there was. <laughs> don't ask, don't ask the reason, but it's there a was a reason. story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's plainly obvious. I know you, I know you want your beer cold, Kevin, but perhaps some clothing on it will work. Have you heard of koozies? It's 857. All talk is next. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow at 6.